Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey guys, I'm Sai, and welcome to Ace Podcast Nation. Here at the channel, we've got podcasts, interviews, and content on all sorts of subjects. Anything from wrestling, football, films, TV, serial killers, mental health, music, conspiracy theories, and more. We've got our weekly series, which is our flagship show, uh, which is on football, which is the Andy Campbell Championship Show, where we discuss the latest news and results from the Skybet Championship, plus the biggest stories from the football world with the former Premier League and Championship striker Andy Campbell providing the expert analysis. We've also got our popular series, Unscripted and Uncensored. We recently dropped uh, two interviews, or one with uh, UFC star Brett Johns, and uh, also one with UFC hot prospect Jack Shaw, fresh off his impressive debut recently. And they are both uh, not to be missed, very enjoyable shows with two lovely guys. this particular show is part of the 10 Days of AceCast, which is uh, basically I'm re- producing, creating, and releasing 10 podcasts in a row in the run-up to Christmas. That's uh, 10 full shows, at least 45 minutes to two hours long, some of them, and uh, every single day is no mean feat. So I'd appreciate it if you guys could uh, follow us on social media, uh, Twitter, at AceCast underscore Nation. Or subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is the, the, the best way to, to support us, really, and help us keep growing, which is youtube.com slash nation. And uh, obviously, you've got all the audio podcast insights as well. Okay, so that's the plugs. Joining me today is uh, former Manchester United, Cardiff City, Swansea City defender, Mr. Derek Brazil. Welcome, Derek. How are you doing, mate? Good morning. So, are you okay? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah, haven't I? Yes. It's a bit of everything, isn't it? Yeah. But uh, yeah, I appreciate you uh, finding some time for me. It's hectic, hectic time of year as we uh, hurtle towards Christmas. Seems to come around quicker every single every single year. That's because you're getting older. Oh, I know, I know. I started to feel it now as well. It's uh, as my kids are getting older. My oldest boy was 15 the other day as well, so it's like oh, oof, starting to really feel it. But uh, yeah, it's good. Christmas is changing for us because. Like, obviously, when you got, I got three boys, and when they were little, it's like, you know, it's all about Santa and this sort of stuff. And, like, my youngest one is on the sort of very brink of of still believing. He's kind of, I think he's at a point where he just, what he's kind of just believing because he doesn't want to have no presence of Santa sort of thing. <laughs> so it's, uh, but, you know, so next year, I think it's going to be a big change, big change for us because they'll be, be all different. But I mean, before we uh, get into, you know, like your career and football and stuff generally, um, I wanted to talk about the the work you're doing and the project you've undertaken, really, uh, which is uh, helping the homeless in the local area. 
Um, so just tell us a bit about that, how we got started, what you're doing, etc. Well, I mean, homelessness, is, is, it's always been a big uh, bugbear of mine, you know. Um, and I think I've lived in Cardiff now particularly for 30-odd years. And you do, you kind of walk past people, but it's becoming more and more evident that you could go 100 yards and, and there'd be four or five people homeless. And it's always bugged me a little bit. And I've always done little bits for it, but nothing as concentrated as this. And uh, about two months ago, I sat down with my uh, girlfriend and I said, why don't we do something different this year, you know? Um, so I got in touch with uh, the Hugard, which is based in Cardiff, the shelter, and a chap called Tony Feezy. So I went down there. I had first-hand knowledge of, of what was going on in the, in, in the actual shelter. The work they do is unbelievable. You know, and they get, they, get, they get a lot of support from people, but they need more. Yeah. So, you know, I went to a couple of their um, meetings um, and then decided, what can I do? You know, what can I do? And what can I, what can I, what can I ask people to help out on without pushing people? Because, you know, there's so many things now that people get asked to help out on. So we just sat down one night and said, listen, why don't we just give up Christmas Day? You know, um, Christmas Day to us. It's a big thing, and surely it is, but to people who are on the streets who, who you know, probably haven't got any family, uh, their only friends are, are, are other homeless people, then let's make it more special for them. Um, so we come up with the idea called In the Box, which is obviously a football type of thing. I didn't get in the box much, to be honest with you. <laughs> so, uh, so we decided to, to, to look at what we could give them. Um, so we came upon the shoebox thing, where it was just, uh, and we asked people to, via Facebook, um, to just donate old gloves, hats, socks, toiletries, um, you know, stuff like that. And the response has been amazing. We've, uh, yesterday alone, I went around to four or five places, and people had done the stuff in the shoeboxes, like dog food as well, which is something you, you forget. Yeah, of course. But they'd wrap, the, they'd put them in a the shoebox, they'd wrap them, they'd put messages on them. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who have got to thank, because they, they just give, they've given, like, new stuff as well, you know? Yeah, yeah. One, one chap, uh, he gave us 20 pairs of new socks, 20 hats. Uh, there's another chap I know, he doesn't want to be mentioned. He gave us, like, 15 coats. Brand new wow. coats. Wow, jeez. You know, and gilets, hoodies. I mean, it, the response has been absolutely amazing. And, and, and such in a way, probably even more so from my point of view, it was only myself and my girlfriend doing it. We were going to have a Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve. Uh, yeah. with my daughter, who's nine. And, but now we've got uh, my stepdaughter wants to get involved. She's coming out Christmas Day with her fella. Um, and there's about four or five other people who are giving up a day as well to come and, and deliver all this stuff, you know? Yeah, it's incredible. And look, like in this day and age, you all you read about, and uh, you know, if you read the newspapers or you go online on social media and, and radio, it's just all negative. And it? it's just, it's always, particularly with the elections recently, it's just everything is negative. There's knife crime. There's, there's people getting hurt and attacked. And, often what you find is when you put something like this out or put something like this together, which you're doing, 
is you you see the good and there's there's so much good out there and there's people who want to help and sometimes it can be as simple as people don't quite know how to help particularly mm. at christmas people like i just said to you before we started i often you know talk to my kids about you know what can we do to try and you know help some people particularly around christmas when it's cold and it's wet and what can we do to help them you know with and they come up with ideas and different things mm. So you do see that response. People do want to do stuff. And I think sometimes they just don't know how to go about it. Um, and I've seen a lot, particularly this year, I think more than ever, like over the last week, um, there's a chip shop in, in Whitchurch in Cardiff, which is around not far from me, which is opening on Christmas Day. And they're giving free, you know, free chips and free fish and chips for, for homeless you know, people uh, to go uh, there. Out of itself is, for me, the, the, the front runner in all of this, because... After the uh, the World Cup that he had in the summer, yeah, uh, which was a major success, um, I've spoke to a lot of friends in Manchester and, and Birmingham and places like that, and they mentioned to me all the time that Cardiff have really pushed it this year. Um, <clears throat> there's so many things that that, that like you said, it's, it's much the media are getting more involved. Yeah, uh, it, you know, you see so many things on Facebook now about, and hopefully, and and. Well, I know some people will probably think it's just for Christmas, but <clears throat> we've got so much stuff that we're not just going to limit it to Christmas Day because, as I said, we've got so many coats and, and stuff like that. We're going to try and make this, you know, hopefully once, maybe twice a month from now on. That'd just be amazing. Going out, you know, because at the end of the day, it's okay going out Christmas Day, you know, uh, and, and, and I thank everybody for, for the donations and coming to help on that day. Um, but this is a big, like I said, a big bugbear of mine that we will continue this, you know, uh, monthly if we can. Um, because people, Christmas is the worst time for people, you know, who haven't got anything. And the statistics tell you that most people become homeless after Christmas as well. Oh, Just that's good, is that? They did you know? not realise that. And also, yeah. I, I read um, somewhere the other week that... Um, the, the kind of uh, the mortality rate in homeless people at Christmas is a lot higher than it is for the rest of the year. Um, obviously, whether that's where people are obviously feeling even more down about their situation because it's I Christmas. Think, I think if you look, if you look at, I think there was a, st a stat the other day that eighty percent, or eighty to eighty-five percent of homeless people are there through mental health. Because of mental health. Unbelievable. In, tw in 2019, come oh. on, 2020, that's a shocking statistic. It's, I mean, you think, I mean, don't get me wrong, there is a lot of, of people who are on the streets that I've spoke to that are quite happy to live on the streets. Mm. But a lot of them have, have been there through mental health. And, and everybody goes through, I don't care who you are, rich, poor, uh, famous, everybody goes through a, a stage in their life, maybe more than once, where they have mental health issues oh absolutely the word mental health years ago was like oh he's a bit of a nut at him leave yeah. him mm -hmm. everybody's got something that is on their mind whether you've lost a job or whether you've lost a partner or split up from somebody it doesn't matter how big or small it is the mental health is massive and and it's good to see that the the, the country as a whole i think is, is looking more into that you know yeah and i think one of the things which uh, I find the most frustrating about, like, you know, the amount of homeless people you see, if you particularly if you go to like big cities like Cardiff or Manchester, London, 
and you see the amount of homeless people who are on the street is you just think God, in 2019 2020 you know in this day and age why is there so many so much homelessness why is there so many people who've got no other choice than to live on the streets um and i just think like as a country as a whole we should be able to 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 do do better and to to find these people shelter or somewhere to live but it just seems to be the, the numbers said, seem to increase rather than reduce yeah you, the, when you, the thing you said there was we i mean the, the people are really is the people up above the people the politicians the, the 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 big time people you know everyone's trying to do that little bit and all that but and will help but it's got to come from above yeah you know? of course it has. yeah that's where it's got to come from um but we all know what they do they just feather their own nest don't they well that's it this is it isn't it i've um it's funny you should say that because i'm i've literally last night was reading like Wales online um and i've got to say i've been very disappointed with Wales online recently um but a lot of the stories is about um it's always like people who are on benefits or, or, or this or that and trying to demonize those people right and then you've got politicians who are getting paid 100 grand a year who are also claiming expenses on houses and cars and all this stuff and you just think all that money could be directed into working with the homeless and and providing these people with the care and the shelter which they need um but the sometimes the media seem to focus on people you know who are struggling or disabled or whatever it may be and it's kind of frustrating to um, me I've, I've been to i'm gonna give you an example i go to bulgaria quite a lot right and you wouldn't say bulgaria is a rich country you know they're not but there are no homeless there you know that when i say not homeless there is obviously homeless but not to the scale that it is in britain yeah. now how can that be you know it's you you very you wouldn't see anyone maybe if you go somewhere like spain or something that's probably a little bit more you know more money still it's not as big ours is this country as a whole it is it's rife now i know you will get a lot of people saying uh which you do and that's their thing it's uh homeless and they'll step over them yeah friends who've done that they've just won't even look at them and just say, oh, lazy, whatever. But to stop and actually talk to somebody and ask them what their story is, don't get me wrong, they will put a sob story on to try and get money out of you. Mm. But if, like I said, don't give them money, give them something to eat or give them some warm clothing or something, you know? It's not yeah, gonna... yeah. But the country has got its principles. And like you said about these politicians, you see them on the telly, they're falling asleep. And I just yeah. think, how can that person keep their job? You do that work, you get sacked. Absolutely, yeah, God damn. And like, yeah, you're right. I think there's a lot of things which politicians um, do. <clears throat> and, you know, if you did that in your day to nine to five job or whatever, you'd be out the door in seconds. Ridiculous. I, mean, I mean, when you look at it, like you look America and Britain, the kind of the biggest or the richest countries in the Western world, probably in, in you know, in the world's, as a whole outside maybe like your China's and stuff is they've, they've got probably the highest rate of homelessness in the world between the two of them. I know in America it's a lot of, you know, former veterans and, you know, there's a lot of people like yourself who are trying to, you know, trying to support and fix that. But 
but why it shouldn't be that way should it you know in in a, in a country like america and britain it should be there's enough money within the systems to you know to do something and do more and it, it's frustrating but now we're america and i think britain as well there's a scale we're all on a scale you know in terms of what you have how much you earn there you got all the top bracket and then it just filters itself all the way down yeah you know there is there is a class system in america and here so unfortunately that's just the way it is and it's been like that for a long time and how that changes i don't know no idea how that changes you know you look at other countries like i said bulgaria you know there's a difference in bulgaria if you've got money you know, and it's, it doesn't need a lot of money in Bulgaria. You've either got it or you haven't. Mm. But when you haven't got it, you're not homeless. You still live comfortably. Whereas as Britain and, and America, I think there's there's a sliding scale right from the top down to the bottom. Yeah. You know, and the and the people at the bottom are the ones who kind of get pushed to the sides and stepped over and left, just left to struggle. And what happens then? They go and top themselves. Yeah. Absolutely, you know it's there you are. So it's interesting because uh, I, you just reminded me of something where you said that like people who like you've seen people stepping over like homeless people and stuff. I saw uh, there's a guy who stands outside my local shop who's selling the big issue, and I I often have a chat with him because he's always really polite. He'll you know he'll say good morning, he'll ask you how you are and stuff. So I like to chat him, but. And it always bugs me the amount of people who will like turn away or uh, like just just completely blank them because this guy he's not he's not trying to force you to buy the big issue he's not going for the big sell he's literally just saying good morning good afternoon you know how are you how's your day he's just trying to like strike up a conversation yes he wants you to buy the the big issue but if you just say oh yeah I'm fine thanks how are you uh, no thanks, I don't want to buy it, or I might buy it another time, or whatever it may be. He doesn't like get really offended, or and it just it, it upsets me. And there was this one guy who said he started shouting at the the big issues. He was like, I don't want to buy the big issue. Go and get a proper job. And he started really getting into it. And he was like, Mate, just come on. Like, can we not do better as people? That you know, these are human beings who are, and particularly you know, with the the, the big issue sellers. They're trying to they're trying to to get back into work, or they're trying to you know do something to like improve themselves. And this guy, he was saying, "Oh, or I don't want to give you money because you're going to spend it on drink and drugs and this." And it's like talk about lumping all these people into one bracket. It was it was really eye opening to see the reaction. And all this guy had done had said, "Good morning," basically. Mm. De- depressing. I think there's a long way to go to, to solving it. Honestly. Yeah, and hopefully, like people like yourself with these this project, um, and obviously if it you know if you can get it to continue throughout the year, is going to help people. You know, like I just I think of the 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 homeless people who haven't got you know warm clothes, and then you you've got like those fifteen coats off that guy. Mm. You know, that's going to really help someone who's freezing cold. Yeah, and got nothing, and not just that. It's gonna, it's gonna perk them up when you turn up and you're like, look, you know, I've got a coat for you, and I've got some toiletries, I've got some dog food for your dog. That's gonna give them a lift. Um, you know, it's not gonna completely change their situation, 
but it's yeah. gonna it's gonna make them feel better than what they were. Um, but yeah, we just need to do better. I think as a as a people, as a as a human race, I think is the is the ultimate thing, isn't it? Um, obviously, you're giving up like a Christmas Day, which you know that in itself, like we often forget, don't we, that there's people when you're you know you're sat around with your family on Christmas Day mm. and you have you're full of food and drink and you could barely move or you have a nap because you've yeah. eaten so much and then you know you forget that there's people who are going to be you know on the street or in a shelter or you know not enjoying that level of comfort. I think well, one of the reasons we, we said Christmas Day as well is that it, when we do go out and, and, and speak to these people and give them the boxes that people have generously given is that they feel, you know, they feel better about themselves that we've decided to come out on Christmas Day yeah. for five, six hours, you know? Um, it's, for us, I mean, to me, it'll be just another day, you know? And my partner and our friends will be another day that, you know, yes, you do feel good about it and, and you want to do more, but it's more the fact that we could come across somebody in an alleyway and they see us coming towards them, and then we say, "Look, here's a nice coat for you. Do these trainers fit you? Here's a glove, hats, here's some, you know, food, some sweets, box of chocolates, blah blah blah." It's the fact that they they feel, "Oh, you've all come out on Christmas Day. Thank you." So they feel that they that that they're someone's actually thinking about them on that day, you know? Because I'm yeah. sure people and people I know do it probably every weekend of the year, but just the fact that hopefully they'll think oh you've actually given up your time on christmas day to come and see us it might make them feel better as a person and possibly help them get off the streets you know by feeling better about themselves yeah and they 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 feel uh hopefully like you know like they do matter like i can imagine that you know if you get people just ignoring you and blanking you and stepping over you constantly that's going to just make you feel worse and worse as well as your situation because you're just going to feel like you know, you you just no one cares, no one matters. How many times have you been blanked, ignored, uh, or someone's walked past you and who you know? Yeah. And you say you feel a bit crap, don't you? And you just think about yeah, yeah. that. Imagine being on the streets and like that. <laughs> you know, we can just we can you know, if you get blanked by someone you know or ignored or something, you can just go and stick the tally on or you can take you can the mind to, off it. Mates. Yeah, but there it must be must be soul destroying really. You know? Yeah, I um I commend you and and like I say, just to kind of finish off on that positive note with this this part of the show. Um, where if people want to donate anything now, obviously it's pretty local, you know, to Cardiff and the surrounding areas. Where can they go to get in contact with you to um, donate anything? Probably there's there's probably three. One to contact me on Facebook. Okay. Um, I'm on there is Derek Michael Brazil, um or my email address, probably the same. Uh, the Oyster Catcher Pub in Panath. Um, it's hard, really. I mean, it's it's, yeah. it's difficult. But if, if people want to catch me on uh, Derek Brazil Five at Yahoo.co.uk, that's probably the. I'll then what I'll do is I'll put a I'll put a link in the bottom of the show as well, so that people can just click it then if they want to yeah. donate. Obviously, we're getting uh, getting close to Christmas now as well. Mm. But um, so just to switch gears a little bit, we'll uh, talk a little bit about your career and some football. Um, 
obviously you were you spent you started your career in uh, in Ireland. Um, how old were you when you sort of first signed for you know signed for a club? Um, well, initially up until the age of ten, um, I played Gaelic football. Oh, which, right, okay. Massive now in, in in Dublin. It always was big. Um, so I played that. Started that about ten years of age, which was quite late, really. Um, and I played that till I was fourteen. And my dad was a, a, an ex-footballer. He, he'd gone to, he played in League of Ireland, and then he'd uh, gone to Blackburn Rovers for a trial for a month. Got homesick, came back, had me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the age of fourteen, uh, he said to me, "Why don't you try football?" So I said, "Okay." So I signed for a team called Belvedere, which is his old team as a striker. I scored 29 goals in my first season. Oof. I know. Uh, but I didn't enjoy it. And that's, that's our issue. I wanted to play centre-half. I was more comfortable with the game in front of me than, you know, seeing the whole picture than my back yeah. to go. So they weren't happy about it, Belvedere. So I went and joined my local club, Rivermount Boys, at under-14s then, and um, played centre-half. Uh, and that year, we, we beat my old team in the final. So that was pretty good. And then I got noticed from the 15 to play for Ireland uh, on the 15 schoolboys. Um, and then at the age of 17, again, I played for Ireland. And I was one of the few players who was still playing in Ireland that weren't attached to a club in England. All right, go. So I went to West Ham for a month on loan. I uh, started a month trial. I trained with the first team there, the likes of Billy Barnes, Trevor Brookin. Uh, wow, Frank McAvenny. It was it was amazing. But Paul Ince was there. But John Lyle, the manager, said to me after a month, he said, "That's not good enough, mate." He said, "You need to go back to Dublin and get a job." So I just went right, fine, okay. Went back hmm. to work. That was in December, nineteen eighty-five, and then in the I continued to play for Ireland, <clears throat> and then in March, um, Man City, Chelsea. And Man United um, had seen me play for Ireland and they wanted me to, to sign for them. So they just, I said, OK. So I'll come over, took my family over, we went round and, and in the end I signed for Man United at the age of 17. Which is, I tell a lot of kids I do now, I mean, I only started playing at 13 years of age. At the age of 17, I signed for United on a three-year contract. So that not, was... not, not a big uh, time frame, is it? And no. I think in this day and age, funny enough, because like my my youngest has been kind of in the system, and my oldest is same has been in this sort of systems with clubs and Cardiff and Tafswell and stuff. It's like they feel, particularly the younger one, when he first played for the Cardiff Development Centre. Sorry, the older one. He's a goalkeeper, and he felt under so much pressure because he he was like nine, playing for the Development Centre, not even like the full academy, and he was playing this game, and he was so nervous that he wasn't playing like he played to get there because yeah. he felt like if he had a bad game or he made a mistake, oh, I can never be a professional footballer now. But it's like, you're nine. And it's getting ridiculously hard now, Sorry, because <clears throat> there's so many clubs and so, there's so many players now that clubs, if they take a thousand kids in, if they get three of them, they're happy. Yeah. It, is a, it is a meat market. Um, my, my situation was slightly different because I was in Ireland. And the scouts were over there. It's a smaller country in terms of the whole of Britain. So 
I mean, I teach kids now football between the ages of five and, and 14, and you see some of them are really talented. But if you send them for a trial somewhere and it doesn't work out, they come back to their club. You know, they're probably the best player of their club. Mm. They probably come back and they probably think, well, that's it. That's my chance over. Yeah. The players who are playing with him think, well, he's the best player in the team. What chance have we got? It has such that's a right. knock-on effect. It's, it's, it's massive. And I mean, it's, 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 it's a bit too much now. And I think money in football as well has probably ruined it all. Ruined yeah. It all. yeah, I agree. So, so you signed for United. Yeah. Like, how did that kind of come about? Because <clears throat> uh, the, the, the man with the Hollywood smile told me there's a bit of a funny, funny story to, uh, to your side well, of United. I, I played, Ron Atkinson was a manager and um, my dad was with me, obviously. He was, he was, and Ron said, look, we want to sign you. There's no problem, but can you just join in this game today um, against the first team? Now, the first team in them days was the likes of Norman Whiteside, Brian Robson, Frank Stapleton. So I played for the reserves and Frank Stapleton was a hero of mine. You know, obviously being Irish as well, he was an Irish legend. He's got a trick against me. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, I think that's blown my chances. So I went upstairs. So I'm sat with my dad. And um, Ron says, look, we want to start a new definitely. Three and a half year contract. And I was sitting there and I went. And Ron looked at me and said, what's the matter? I said, I said, well, Frank scored a hat trick against me. He said, well, he could have scored nine. He said, did you forget the block tackles and the way you... I said, okay, okay, clearing off the line. I said, okay. So, Ron, though, he's a massive character. Ron, he had a sunbed in, in one of the rooms. <laughs> you could see the light from underneath the thing. I was thinking, what the hell is that? So, he said, right, let's talk figures now. So, my dad, right, you know, my dad and Mick went, right. So, they agreed on, a, I think it was something like 250 quid first year, 275 a week, second year. 325 third year, which back in 86 was a lot, lot of money. Yeah. I think the likes of Brian Robson were only on three grand a week. You know, captain of England. That was the highest. So Ron and my dad said, okay, we're signing on for you now. So my dad says, well, I know what my son's worth. You know, proper Irishman. But Ron says, well, okay, what do you want to do? So my dad ripped up a piece of paper so he slid it across to Ron. He said, um, you write down there how much you're going to give my son over three years. And I'll write down on my piece of paper what I think. And we'll, ex- we'll swap and see what we are. So Ron went, happy days. He's like, you know, all jewelry hanging out of him. Happy days. Mm-hmm. So my dad wrote, Ron wrote, they exchanged. So I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> so Ron picked his up. And I managed to look at my dad, my dad's one that Ron had done, and Ron had written down five grand. Now I had no idea what my dad had written down. So Ron looked at his and he went, It's a deal, Mick. So they stood <laughs> up, shook hands, and I was like, What's my dad what, written? What just happened? What? So they were they they were looking out the window now, and I kind of <laughs> leaned over to see what my dad had written. And I looked at it and I thought, My dad hadn't written any figure. All he'd written down was double it. <laughs> so whatever Ron had written, he'd put double it. And Ron had gone, deal. So we went outside and said to me, Dad, I went, I said, Dad, you had some balls doing that, didn't you? He said, I know. I said, what's the matter? I said, look, you're happy of something for United? He went, yeah. He said, 
I should have put triple in. <laughs> I couldn't spell triple. <laughs> oh, my God. I thought, oh. So that's how it kind of stepped. But Ron got the sack about six months later. Oh. And that's when uh, Alex Ferguson came in. So, system. that's, you know, that's a lot of money in, you know, 1986 for a, what, 17, 18-year-old coming, coming over from Ireland. It's a lot of money, isn't it? So they obviously, um, they, Ron, Ron Atkinson obviously fancied you as a player to, uh, you know, to, to, to give that money for a, young, a youngster and bring you over from Ireland and stuff. So what was it like that, that kind of, that once you've signed and you go there for the first time? Because even back then, it was a big club. It wasn't quite the, the, the behemoth it is now. But, I mean, it was still one of the biggest clubs around. I think it was. I think Liverpool were the dominant force in, in that era. Um, it was weird, really, because when I did start playing football at 13 years of age, my only dream was to go and play in England. That was it. I mean, people would say to me, what are you going to do when you leave school and all that? And so I'm going to play football. You know, don't get me wrong, you need a little bit of luck. I mean, and it all worked out quite well. Some people say I should, probably should have signed for Chelsea at the time. Man City were bringing all their youngsters through. Um, but you do have some regrets about signing for them. But, but then again, the, 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 the education that I had there in the six years I was there. And then to train with the players, like, like I said, the likes of Whiteside and, and Brian Robson, Paul McGrath. Um, Frank Stapleton, you know, Peter Schmeichel, amazing, amazing players. And I was in digs with like about five other lads. But it is one of them. You soon find your feet, you know, 17, yeah. 18, find your feet. Find your local pubs that you can go and have your first drink in. Because I didn't have a drink until I was 17. Yeah. My first drink, my first proper drink was when I went over to Manchester. And you get a group of boys there. They're all Scottish, Welsh, Irish. Um, and you find your local pub. But the, the one thing we didn't know was Fergie knew all the bar managers. Yeah. So, so exactly you, what I pull you in and go, you were in the Griffin last, Tuesday, last Tuesday or something. No train on the Wednesday. You were in the Griffin last Tuesday. And you're sitting there thinking, and he's looking at you waiting for an answer. And you go, um, he said, in fact, I'll give you the time. It's between <laughs> 7 and 11 o'clock. And this yeah. is what you were drinking. Man, the man was, he was right on it, to be honest. And that was with everybody. He was, a, he was obviously a lot harder on the likes of Whiteside and McGrath because they were like <laughs> lunatics. Big so. drinkers. Yeah. Yeah I, um, yeah, I mean, Paul McGrath and Whiteside were legendary, weren't they? They're, you know, they're drinking and stuff. Like, I can't remember, someone, it was one of, one of the footballers I interviewed, actually, they said, like, Paul McGrath, we could go out all night on a Friday night, drinking, come in in the early hours, and then he'd turn up for a match oh. and play out of his skin as if he had been, you know, teetotal and, and player of yeah. all time. I mean, I'm lucky enough to say my favourite player to watch and to play with because, and I think, I mean, Paul and Norman got a lot of stick about that, but the, the drinking culture was, was just the way it was in them days. Not just at Man United, but Liverpool, you know, Man City everywhere, um, and it was like more like a bonding thing then, you know, where yeah. okay, there's no there's no training tomorrow, so all the boys would go out for an all day. Uh, so it was hello. Yeah, you're still there. You just camera's gone off, sir. I think is it my battery or yours? 
No, no, it's still mine. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I think it was, Paul, was, it was amazing. You wouldn't, sometimes you wouldn't train all week. You'd just be on the bike. And then he'd go and play on a weekend for the first team. you think, man, he hasn't even trained all week. Best player in the Yeah. And a lovely guy as well. Absolutely lovely. Fellow. Lovely fellow when he was sober. And when he was even, when he was drunk, he was even nicer. <clears throat> That's the thing. It's a great, uh, great what, player. Um, what, sort of, yeah, what sort of players were in that? Like the, the youth team or the, the reserve side and the team which you were training with when you first got there? Well, when I was there, um, the ones we were called like Fergie's fledglings, mm. the ones he gave us all our debuts to. There was myself, Russell Beardsmore, uh, Daniel Graham, Lee Martin, um, Gary Walsh, and then you had the likes of Giggs, he was just underneath us. Yeah, but he would often play in our reserve team games together. Uh, Beckham was slightly younger, and, and the class of '92 were like slightly younger as well, but you could see. That group of players, the Nevilles, the Butt, um, Giggsy, you know, that you could see they were all coming through. And I think that was one of the reasons why quite a few of us decided to kind of go when we were given the chance. Yeah. Because to get bypassed by them, when you're young, it, you kind of don't realise how good they're going to be. But you can yeah, see they, they, they're going to get in before you, you know. So, so you little- so you left United, obviously um, you spent some time on loan at, um, at Oldham and Swansea um, and then you left, uh, was it August 92 mm. and joined Cardiff for uh, 80, 85 grand. God, times have changed, haven't they? Well, that, that 85 grand, it's actually more than that, it's 85 grand plus another 20 when I made 100 appearances, which when I bumped into Fergie in um, 2000, at Ninian Park, when they were playing Millwall in the um, FA Cup at uh, Millennium. Oh, yeah. That, uh, I said, how are you doing? I said, all right, boss. Yeah, keep calling boss. He said this, I won't use his words, but he was swearing that this club owes us money for you still. I said, pardon? <laughs> he said they owe us effing 20 grand. <laughs> but the club at the time had gone through so many people trying to take over the club. So whether the club still owe United 20 grand for me, or not, I don't know. <laughs> so, how did the move to Cardiff come about? Um, well, I'd gone to Swansea uh, about a year and a half before, and Frank Burrows was the manager. Uh, I was there for three months, and United wanted something like 150 grand or something, and Swansea couldn't afford it. So, I had to go back. So, I went back, uh, Fergie offered me another two year contract, um, and it was then that Eddie May had seen me play for Swansea. So he asked, uh, funny enough, Fergie said to me, can you go along to Wrexham? I said, no, don't want him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he said, we'll go to Cardiff then. I said, okay. So I came down on the train um, for a month's loan. Uh, played a couple of games and Eddie said to me, look, we'd like to sign you full time now. So he got in touch with Fergie. Uh, Fergie got back to him. And then before my loan period was up, I'd signed um, a two, three-year contract. So, yeah, I was, so, I was delighted, to be honest. I was surprised at how big the club was even then and the fans and the, um, the way that... I mean, Ninian Park, to me, I, mean, I know the stadium now is, is amazing, but 
Linear Park to me was a fantastic stadium, especially when it was full as well. It was it was right on you, proper yeah. stadium. You know? Proper football stadium. Yeah, proper. Yeah, I I miss uh, Ninian Park. I got to be honest. It's um. So, did you ever? Were you ever kind of in two minds whether to leave United or were you kind of ready to ready to go and get some first team football? I was. I think I was ready because I was twenty three years of age. I played twice for the first team. Um, I was captain of the reserves, and but I kind of knew in my head. I was looking at, I was thinking. Well, you've got Bruce and Pallister there and, and you've got young lads coming through as well. It was time for me to go. 23 is quite old, even then. Plus, I was playing for Ireland under 23s and I was in the B international team. Yeah. With ambitions to play for the senior team. And I thought, well, I'm not going to do that in my reserve team, you know, reserve games. So going to Cardiff was, was, was probably the best move for me as well, you know, in terms of playing regularly. I'd had the taste of it playing at Swansea, um, but it, it was the right. It felt the right move as soon as I got there. After a couple of games, I thought this feels good here. You know, I feel comfortable. Um, Eddie was a fantastic manager straight away. I hit off with him, and it was just a case of like, yeah, I like it here, and and, and it's, it turned out to be a great idea because my first season here, we, we won the league and the Welsh Cup and qualified for Europe, which was amazing. Yeah, you spent was it about four years at City? Yeah, which is you know it's a good, over a hundred appearances, and uh, like you say, that first season was particularly successful. Did you? Um, who would you say was the the best player that you played with at Cardiff? I, I mean, I can only look at the first season. I mean, my second season was all right. My, my third and fourth season were blighted by injuries and blighted by woeful managers. Uh, oh, we had managers there who, you know, the likes of Phil Neal, you know, even Terry Horace. They didn't didn't go they well. Doing, no, they were doing it for a job. It wasn't. They didn't have the feel for the club, you know. And we and we had yeah. people trying to run the club, and it was it was a bit of a shambles. But I probably, if I have to say, best players, Robbie James would have to be up there. Quality. Robbie James was a great man. He was great in pre-season because me and him are normally at the back anyway in the running. But I think he was about 40 when I, when, when I played with him. What a football brain. So he was just, he was like two steps ahead of everyone else, you know. Wasn't quick, but he read the game so well. And I'd probably have to say the other one would be probably probably Blakey for his, yeah. his, his kind of, his talent for a start, but his 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 attitude towards his talent was always impressed me. It was like he he was all for the players, but when we played against teams and they tried to kick him and all that, they they kicking the wrong person there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He was like right. That was the worst thing you could do to Blakey. So I think those two probably wouldn't be my best two. That's a fair shout, I think. I mean, like. Robbie James, like you say, we, we was forty and he was still reading the game than better oh. than most uh, most players around. He uh, was tremendous, but he's one of my favourites when I was a, a nipper. And like you say, Blakey he was just one of those special players who was uh, able to pull something out of nothing. Yeah, which you know he did so much. Um, and funny, it's funny you should mention some of the the managers that you uh, played under because I've got on my certain list of stuff to talk about. <laughs> 
is uh, the managers because you you had a few uh, dodgy ones to be fair. Um, so after that sort of four year period, you uh, you left Cardiff. Were you disappointed to leave that when you did, or was it kind of again uh, like the right <coughs> time? I remember the day I left. To be honest, um, Phil Neal and Terry Kenny Hibbert were joint managers, and we were all getting called in. It was like the last day of the season or something. And there was a few young lads and we arranged to meet in the Admiral Napier. Right? So we all knew our times that we were going to meet. So I, so Lee Jarman was in before me, Simon Howarth uh, and a couple of others were in there. So I went in with the intention of like, I'd been injured for about five weeks and the two of them barely spoke a word to me in that time. So I kind of knew my contract was up. So I said to Lee Jarman, I'll be in. I'll, be, I'll see you in the admin neighbor about quarter past two. I'm not going to be long. I was in at two o'clock or something. So I went in and uh, Kenny Hibbert sat there and he said nothing. <clears throat> Phil Neal, he turned around and he said, uh, Listen, Derek, you've been a great servant for the club. Uh, hasn't been a great season for you. Um, so, you know, we've been chatting and I knew what was coming. And I said, I've got to stop you there. I said, I've made my mind up, I'm leaving. <laughs> and he sat back and went um, I said look no 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 I said even if you offer me a five year contract he said I'm, I'm not staying at this club I said I've had enough and to be honest while I'm at it I said I think you two are the wrong people for the job <laughs> and their faces <laughs> were looking at me as if to say and, he, and Phil Neal said there's no need to be like that I said well, look <laughs> I said I'm just saying you know and around the time that that, that advert was out and I said, listen, like the Murphys, I'm not bitter. And he looked at me as if to say, hell, you all about it? And he picked up the phone, Phil Nay, and he said, listen, we weren't going to offer you a contract anyway. I said, let's, like I said to you, I wouldn't have accepted it. <laughs> and he looked at me and he was like, he said, it's only plastic, this phone, but give me a ring if you ever need advice. I said, no problem. Listen, anyway, and I looked at my watch and it was about 20 past two now. I said, listen, I got an appointment somewhere. I need to go. I said, all the best. Take care. And I went outside the door and I was shaking. And I went out the main door then into the car park and I had tears in my eyes then because I knew that even though I didn't want to be there with them, I knew that I'd had, it, the whole four years had just gone in that, that time. Yeah, yeah. Being tears. And I walked to the Admiral Napier and I went in and had a point and had a few points with the boys and, and told them what happened and they were like, laughing the heads off and, <laughs> and I thought I'd never go back there to be honest but he ended up going back there in 19 that was in 97 he ended up going back there in 99 as a, a football and the community officer yeah they were then <laughs> yeah they didn't, they didn't last too long no. I don't think no so where did you go from there you went to Newport didn't you I went to Newport um, stayed, stayed stayed in Wales stayed in the area yeah I mean I had chances to go to China um, back to Ireland I actually did go back to Ireland for about 10 days to see what the, what the crack was like over there but I had a call from Newport and they offered me a dual thing um, obviously it was part time so to be their community officer to start coaching and play for the team so I accepted that did that on a two year deal did that for two years um, and then the um, and it's, it's great really because in 1997 I was I was 27 when I retired. 
yeah. from professional, which is only 10 years from actually signing United. 10 years later, 27 is quite young to retire. Um, and to take up coaching, which I did in, in 97, which is what, nearly, what was that, 30 years ago, was it? 30 yeah, years ago? Just about, isn't it? I've done that, so 25 years. If I hadn't took that coaching role, I probably wouldn't be doing what I do now, which is coaching in schools. But we're doing the same thing, obviously with different clubs, and, and then I set my own business up. So that was probably the best thing for that, really. I mean, a great time at Newport. Brilliant club, brilliant people running the club. But what sticks in my mind, which is key, is the um, is taking that coaching role in the schools because it's what I do now, all those years later. And, you yeah, know, it's I, funny how you, things turn out, isn't it? Because, like, you know, you could have gone, you could have gone back to Ireland or you could have gone mm-hmm. to China or somewhere else, not taken that, because you could have thought, well, you know, I'm 27, I've still got a few years yeah. left. Um, I knew um, my body was only ready for for part-time football training. Yeah, teams. you've had you'd had a few injuries, haven't you? Yeah. Tw- towards the end of the spell with Cardiff and stuff. Um, so you had a dabble in uh, in managerial roles as well. Uh, in- yeah, I, I I managed Newport for one game. Me and Lee, uh, Ray John did it, for one, and we beat Crawley three-one away. It was brilliant, and I got a little taste for it. Then I thought, okay. I then left Newport, went into Cardiff with George Wood. Uh, playing the, the Welsh Cup final with them. Then I went to Halford West um, as a player. Uh, went down there for a few years. Loved it. It was great. Again, lovely people. And then a few years later, they asked me to become manager. And I was manager there for four years in the Premier League, which was, was brilliant. I loved it. Like I say, great people, some yeah. great players there. Um, and then I got the bullet as you do mm-hmm. um, because results in fact I, I remember and I still tell them now my last game was Neath away and Lee Trundle scored a trick and he was on fire and you're going back now about what 10 years and he's still doing it now isn't he yeah I think he still plays well league football doesn't he well he, he, he I think he single handedly beat uh, Camargo last week but Ammonford knocked him out of the uh, Welsh Cup yeah he's uh, I gotta say I, I pride myself when we do the Andy Campbell show. I pride myself on the fact that we're fair to everyone, even mm. Swansea and uh, Swansea and Leeds. And uh, you know, Lee <laughs> Trendall is a very, very talented footballer. Yeah, so, he could. Do you know what? He should have played for Cardiff. And I tell you why. I was playing for Halford West at the time, and uh, I came back. We played half. We played real, and I was playing centre half. And this kid scored a trick against me. Right, Lee Trundle. So I found out his name. I went back and I said to Phil Neal, <laughs> I said, there's a lad here. I've just seen him on the weekend. Plays for real. I'll tell you what. Better than what you've got here. Better than what we got. What's his name? Lee Trundle. Oh, we look into it. Three weeks later, he signed for Wrexham for 50 grand. No, they didn't. If they'd done any, if they, if they anything about him, so he could have ended up being a Cardiff City hero. Well, the the thing could have changed easily. The thing but is, with everyone now, kind of. yeah, that's it. No, but like, the thing is, with like uh, the Welsh league, particularly for, for Cardiff, Swansea, Wrexham, is it's worth a punt on some of these Welsh league players because there's some there's some decent players in the Welsh yeah. league. You get them for next to nothing, you know. They don't they, they don't work out. They don't work out. But I I often think they they miss a trick even now by not you know just having a gamble here and there on some of the more talented footballers in the Welsh yeah. League 
the younger ones because you just never know. You know, Jamie Vardy was playing non-league football less than 10 years ago and he's exactly. England striker now, isn't he? He's banging, scoring goals managers, for fun. Are, managers are under pressure that they think if they do that, then the fans will think, well, that, you're, not, you're not thinking big there. Yeah, but you equally, know? if you could, you know, Cardiff fans love that, that, that kind of either homegrown player or those Welsh players coming through the squads, don't they? Whether they've come from the Welsh league or the academy system. Yeah. But I think, I think it becomes a problem if, like, that's the only player you sign in the transfer window, isn't it? If you sign, like, yeah, a yeah. Welsh league striker for 20 grand and that's it. You've got to but, balance it out, haven't you? Got yeah. But I do think they miss a trick and I think it's worth mm-hmm. a, it's definitely worth a gamble. Um, so, do you, you know, during your, your football career, and your, your, your managerial career and, and your life within fo- professional football, semi-professional football, who is the, the biggest knobhead you've ever met or come across? <laughs> a, my favourite question, because every footballer has a different answer. Well, and, I, they've, and they've always got a funny story to go with it. So, uh, well, yeah. Biggest knobhead in football. Well, I've got more than one, see. Yeah, that's all right. You've got time. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, Phil, Phil Neal is one of them. Now, and, and I tell you... Terrible manager. I, I tell that, that story with that. And I tell you what the story came into. All right, This is what really turned me off him, you know? One, he was a Liverpool player anyway. Eddie got the sack. So we're all in the changing rooms now. And uh, Rick Wright comes in. He said, we've got a new manager. So he steps in. And immediately I looked at him. I thought, wow, it's Phil Neal. Yeah. You know, that, that they've gone big there. I don't know what club he was at the time, but they've gone with someone with a lot of pedigree. Even though I'm anti-Liverpool, a lot of pedigree, here we go. He stepped in, he went, okay, boys. He said, uh, I'm not going to stand here in front of you and go on about my 12 championship medals, my 100 caps for England, my two European Cup things, my two Super Cups. And he went on like this, I'm thinking. Straight away, you've got to be thinking what a dickhead. What a dick, right? I turned yeah. the day there and I went. So I thought, okay, it's, it's difficult to announce yourself to somebody, a squad of players you don't know. So we went to the training ground. But the training ground, and we're, we're setting up like a practice now. And uh, he's on the sideline now. So I get the ball, pass it into midfield to a lad called Chris Ingram. I don't know if you know Chris. Yeah, yeah, I know. Great lad, Chris, right? Ingy, we call him. So passed it into him. He's nothing on, so he passes it sideways. Finley goes, blows his whistle. Stop, 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 stop. Give me the ball back. So he goes to uh, Ingy. He goes, what's your name, son? And Ingy goes, Valley Boy. He went, Ingy. <laughs> and he goes, pardon? He goes, Ingy. He went, he went Ingy. He said, what's, he said, what's your real name? He said, Chris Ingram. He said, right. He said, we used to have a lad called Suness. I thought, oh, my God. Please, no. I'm thinking, to give me the ball, he goes, right. He said, pass me the boss your name. I said, Derek. So I passed it to him. He said, right, this is what you need to do, Ingy. Turn on it and chip it in. And he, and he says to the striker, which was Steve Flack at the time. <laughs> right. He goes, what's your name, son? Big lad, what's your name? And he goes, Flacky. And he goes, what? <laughs> Flacky. And he's looking at it, I said, Flacky. All right, he said, right. So I gave him the ball. And he tried to chip it into Flacky. Couldn't get it past the first midfielder. Said, Give me the ball again. Give me the again. <laughs> so I'm thinking, right. So he's trying this three times now. Couldn't do it. 
So he's blaming me now for the pass into him. <laughs> so he then chips it in on the fourth attempt to Flacky. And it's a nice easy ball. It bounces off Flacky's shin and goes about 12 yards away. <laughs> what the hell is going on? So he goes, that's how we do it. Okay. So I got the ball. It's a stat. So I get the ball into Ingy. <laughs> Ingy gets it. Passes sideways. <laughs> Those nuts on the sideline now. And Ingy just gives me a wink there. And he's done it on purpose, Ingy. Yeah. He's done it on purpose. And <laughs> I thought, what an absolute tool. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He didn't announce himself. I didn't drop a name straight away. You think, oh, do me a favour. Yeah. Um, probably the other... The other one, I don't know why I can say this because he's Welsh. Crack on. Mark Hazelwood. Yeah, I can see that. What a, what a, a sneaky man. What a sneaky man. Uh, he, he just, he was all for himself, you know. When Eddie was there and um, he was conniving behind his back to try and get Eddie out of a job. Um, and yeah, you know, I played alongside Mark Hazelwood. And I, I tell you what, I've got the coaching sessions with him. Probably one of the best coaches I've ever seen hmm. in terms of his knowledge of the game. But as a bloke, always up for himself, always trying to do people our stuff, you know, snaky eyes and all that. But yeah. a bit of a knob. You've got me, you've got me going now because I've got a list of people, but I, yeah, I, can't, I can't go on anymore. I can't say <laughs> That's right. As, the, um, I'm surprised by that simply because Eddie May was so popular with you know with fans and with players and yeah, but Azel would want him out so he could get his mate Terry Orr the job. No, that went well. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mind Terry to be honest because no, I mean, he's all right, Terry, but he just wasn't the right manager for the club again. You know. Yeah, he did. He did all right for um, he did all right for Wales. I just uh, he just didn't. Uh, he never. Never felt right when mm. he was Cardiff manager. It just didn't quite click. And you're going to get that, you know, at all clubs. Sometimes it just doesn't work. Um, so, do you watch much football these days? Um, it's weird, actually, because um, I used to go through a lot of watching football, but I found myself... I watch... Well, obviously, I work at Cardiff City, so I watch Cardiff City. And when they're away, I watch them on my phone. And I watch Man United on my phone. But it's weird when you watch, when I watch Man United and Cardiff because you feel like you're playing in the game. Yeah. And if the result goes against you, you can ask my missus. Ruins the weekend. It just, whether it's Man City or Man United, it just, and if both of them lose, I'm like, it just, I, I feel, it's weird because I, I like watching it, but when it's not going well, I think, what am I watching this for? And it just, I feel like it's, it's, it's weird to explain. When the games are over and say they both lost, I feel like I'm sitting in the changing room. Yeah. With that emotion still of, uh, and it's hard going to watch games as well because, because of the coaching side of it. If you're watching the game, the ball's up. If we're attacking, I do this with Cardiff all the time, we're attacking. I, I might like, say the ball's up there. I'm looking at our back three or back two, seeing what they're doing. Yeah, see so where they're going. Watching, I'm not even. Oh. Sometimes I'm not even watching what's happening. I'm actually watching to see what, say, you know, Morrison's doing, or, or is he in the right position? 
is the fullback back. So it's, it's really weird, and it kind of it, it kind of it ruins the game for me a little bit. Yeah. Unless it's the four 0 up, which sorry, then no. happened for a while, has it? No, no, it has not. So with um, with United, do you think Solskjaer's going to last the season? I didn't think up until about four or five games ago. I didn't think so. I haven't beaten. Uh, Spurs haven't beaten Arsenal and Arsenal haven't beaten Spurs haven't beaten City, City. Um, I think they will because you can see a progression there of what he's trying to do with the young players the problem with United is their experienced players are all they're all on the bench yeah I mean they need that balance of like I mean I think Maguire's a good signing I think they'll keep Solskjaer to the end of the season if if he just if he gets if he wins a cup and gets in the top four, yeah. If he doesn't win a cup and they don't get in the top four, I don't know. A lot will depend how the fans are. And I think the fans at the moment are back on his side. Yeah, and I think with the the Spurs game particularly, I think that was the one where if they'd lost that heavily against Mourinho, that yeah. was going to be the one which could get people to turn because no one expected them to beat Man City. So... It's kind of like this derby game. It's just one of those games. If they'd lost that, you could see maybe that wouldn't result in the fans turning or him getting the sack. But I think the Spurs game, and they were really good in both. Um, yeah. The problem is they don't seem to be able to... They, like On the counter-attacking football, they're incredible. They're yeah. so good at the moment. But the problem they have is when they can't play that counter-attacking team, uh, counter-attacking football, when they come up against... Uh, you know, like a a Sheffield United or the the sort of well, perceived it, lesser teams, they struggle a bit with creativity. They've got it spot on because if you look at their form, right, they were 10 minutes away from beating Liverpool. They got a draw against them. They've beaten Chelsea. They've beaten Leicester. They've beaten uh, Tottenham. They've beaten Man City. But they can't. And all those teams that I've mentioned will come at you. They yeah. will go for you. And they will leave that open to your counter-attacking skills that they have. It's they've lost against Palace. You know they can't beat the likes of Watford, Sheffield United. It's because them those teams are sitting okay. Sit back now, try and break us down. And that's where they lack. That's where they lack somebody from midfield to, you know, to to try and break teams down. They haven't got that type of magician in there to actually do that. Tabala would have been a decent signing if they'd have got him. He looks a quality player in. Yeah, I think they need someone who's um, who can play that killer pass or like do something yeah. a bit special from deep. Um, you know, and I think they hoped Pogba was going to be that. Um, I've lost patience with him. Yeah, the problem is is that he seems like he's for himself more than I think. If, that people would be fine with his social media and the way he is because a lot of modern footballers are like that. But I think. The problem is, is that too often he's inconsistent on a pitch. You can have one game where you think, finally, he's arrived. This is what we paid mm. the money for. They paid the money for. This is, you know, this is what he's about. And then the next game, he'll do absolutely nothing, and you just think, oh. Well, I think United they are crying out for a player like Pogba, for right? somebody who can do it. Yeah, but nine I don't games see- out of ten. I've been bigging him up for a couple of years now, and I've had so much stick off my mate in the, you know, mates in the pub saying no, he's rubbish and all that. And he'll turn her on, and next minute, he, he just think he's a waste of space. And I think with McTominay in there, 
even Fred now, I mean, he used to get a lot of stick, Fred, but Fred's had a, a run of, what, 12 games or something? And my mates who are Man United fans who go to the games said he's been, he's been excellent. Maybe he hasn't got that shadow. I, I've been told, whether it's true or not, that I don't think Pogba will play for United again. No, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't okay. be surprised. I think he'll be sold in January. Well, when I spoke, I spoke to, um, I'm not sure if you know him, uh, Phil Brown, who's uh, he's like an Irish uh, football journalist, but uh, he lives in the States. And he, right. I've had him on a couple of times. And he, he, um, he was told by someone within Pogba's kind of management team when he signed that he was there for two years and then he was going to Madrid. That was always the plan. And then he's ended up staying longer for whatever reason because they wouldn't sell him or they over, like overpriced him or whatever. So I'd be amazed if he doesn't go this year. I think he'll go in January, I do. I, I think they should get rid of him in January. I mean, he's been off, okay, he's had an ankle injury. Then he's been out doing basketball. Then he went to his brother's wedding, which is fine. Then he's come back and now he's ill. But what will turn, what will turn the fans, I think, potentially on Solskjaer, is if they sell him for 100 million, that will turn the fans. Because I think they just see that as the money will just be pocketed by the Glazers. And I think that's got the potential to be a problem. Whereas if they sell him for 50 million and get Bale and whoever, yeah, Disco or someone, that at least they're... Because they, the problem United have got is they haven't replaced the players they've sold for the last few no. seasons. Like Fellaini, yes, he wasn't like the star player, but he got important goals. He played most games off the bench or played... They didn't replace him. They didn't. Re- they didn't replace Lukaku, and it's. I think that's problematic because even though they weren't, you know, superstars, if you like, yeah. they were first team players. Um, yeah. I think you're right. If they if they sell him for a hundred million, and don't bring somebody in in January, the fans will think. And I agree with you. They'll think the Glazers are just pocketing money again. Um, but. I don't think it's a bad deal. I mean, I, I, I don't understand what people see about it. I think Bale is a fant- fantastic player. If you've got Bale plus 50 million, happy days. Yeah, Even at his age, he is quality. And you, you know that he'll get the right rest and recovery time. You know, and will fit him well there. I mean, it'd be great. But they need, they can't just get rid of him and not bring somebody in. They have to bring somebody in. Yeah, they got to got to replace him. The th- yeah. It's an interesting thing about Bale is the first thing people will throw you is his injury record. But if you yeah. actually look into it, his injury record, like I don't mean his stats, I mean when he's been available to play, his injury record isn't as bad as what people make it out to be. It's just no, I... that he's often when he comes back from injury, Madrid don't play him for two months, and yeah. then. So it looks like he's been out longer or more than he I, has been. I think more so will be the wages. That could be the stumbling. Yeah. But I mean, I think it'd be good for Daniel James to get Bale in, I've got to say. I think that would be exceptional. He, he has been apt. And when, when he was signed, right, in the summer, <clears throat> I had a lot of like, my mates, Man United mates, and they're going, 15 million, why are we only spending 15 million on a player? I said, look, this lad has got something. Oh, I yeah. See well, I said he will. You the fans will love him there, and they have they absolutely adore him up there. And he's probably after Maguire and De Gea, Rashford. He's probably the next name on a team sheet every time. Yeah, and I think it it you know it only took one game, didn't it? That Chelsea the Chelsea game, first game of the season, oh. 
Brilliant. and that they fell in love with him. He's he's so quick and like he's fast becoming Wales's most important player in a couple of years. Oh, like, do you know what? I actually think he's better on the left than he is on the right. Yeah, I do too. But I, we've got Rashford on the left. <laughs> it's like they've got you know, it's nice things to have, but it's great to see him doing so well as well. He's 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 loved a bit, and by all accounts, he's a very humble boy yeah. as well. You know? Yeah, it's good. Hundred percent. No, what they need. I think lastly on United, I'll say is what they need is they need someone like Pogba who's going to do it regular because if they put the service into Rashford, uh, Greenwood, James, uh, Martial, they, they, they will score. And especially, particularly Greenwood, if they give him a run of games, but they've got to give him a run of games when you've got someone in midfield who's going to play the ball yeah. in behind for him to run onto. And because he's an exceptional finisher. Yeah. But they've yeah. got to they've got to get someone in who can do that. Whether it's I know they've talked about Madison, they've talked about um, you know Dybala and people like this. They've got to get someone who can play that number ten position. And ironically, they've refused to play Pogba in that number ten position for the whole time he's been there. They've tried to play him as a two in midfield. Yeah. But play him if he does play for him again this year. You know you've got the two win Fred and McTominay who are playing well. Mm. Surely the I you'd play Pogba in that ten role instead of Lingard, and then maybe you'll get the best out of him. I don't know. Well, I think we'll the, the wait and see one, isn't it? To be yeah, definitely. Um, all right, Derek. Uh, so I'll put the links to your to your email and stuff in the the bottom of the description. Um, obviously, people can follow you on Twitter and stuff like that. Thank yeah. you very much for your time, mate. I do really appreciate you. And uh, guys and girls watching and listening, if you could give me a, a follow on social media, it's uh, Twitter at AceCast underscore nation or Facebook.com slash AceCast nation. Uh, most importantly, subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is YouTube.com slash AcePodcastNation, uh, as that's the best way to support us. And obviously, you can download the audio versions of all our shows uh, at the usual podcasting apps. And uh, get involved with the 10, uh, 10 days of AceCast which is where I'm producing and releasing 10 full-length podcasts in 10 days, which is no mean feat. Uh, it's a lot harder than what, you, what it sounds. And uh, at certain points, I've regretted saying I was going to do it, shall we say. But uh, this is going to happen. We're on, as we record this, it's been day number five, so we're halfway through. Uh, get involved, drop some comments, drop some likes, shares, repeats, that sort of thing. Derek, thank you for joining me, mate. I really appreciate it. No problem. Have a great Christmas, pal. Top man. And you, buddy. Cheers, buddy. Network.